Take advantage of your advantages. That is a little philosophical quote that I made up. So, you're welcome. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, for example, right now, my daughter, she's taking a nap. She's taking a nap in the other room, so I can't be too loud. But what service would I do when I'm about to kick off another podcast episode with my buddy? You know who's with me, DJ Khaled. Hit him with another one. So what am I going to be talking about today? Am I going to be talking about Apple, Steve Jobs, and the invention of the iPhone? No. I'm going to be talking about a man that is much greater, much more influential. And if you were to put these two men in an octagon, I'm sure Steve Jobs would get his ass kicked by the one, the only, Booker T. Washington. Let's give him a DJ horn. Bam, 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 bam. Booker T. Washington. What a what an awesome guy. So I'm going to be reading some excerpts from Booker T. Washington's autobiography. And once again, this quote that I heard a while back and just recently was refreshed in my memory. The person who reads lives a thousand lives. And the reader who does not read, or the non-reading person, only lives one. And one of the, or two of the, time periods that thoroughly fascinate me and blow my mind is the World War II era with Hitler and the Nazis and the Americans kicking a boot up that ass. And you know what, the Holocaust and the Jews and all of those things, thoroughly fascinating. And the other one is the slavery era. Both of those two time frames, I cannot wrap my mind around the oppressiveness that man can put on another man. It's like, geez, we're all the same. But hey, I guess I'm just a more evolved human living in the future and we have been, have been able to learn from our mistakes. So nevertheless, let's open up the book and get to reading from Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington. (coughs) Here we go, Booker T. Washington's in his own word. I'm not quite sure of the exact place or exact date of month, but at any rate, I suspect I must have been born somewhere and at some time. As nearly as I have been able to learn, I was born near a crossroads post office called Hales Ford in the year of 1858 or 1859. You know what? Can you imagine not not having a birthday? Not even know, knowing what year you were born in? The significance of that, we take that for granted, being celebrated each year. You know, happy birthday, having the cake, the presents, the candles, you're being surrounded by your friends and family. That's a blessing. And back in the day, oh sure, they they knew when the birthdays were, but not for the blacks. The white people, they all knew the dates, times, and locations they, they were born in, but not the blacks. And Booker T. Washington goes on to say, In the days of slavery, slavery, not much attention was given to family history and family records. That is, black family records. My mother, I suppose, attracted the attention of a purchaser who was afterward my owner and hers. 
Her addition to the slave family attracted about as much attention as the purchase of a new horse or cow. Yep, that's how blacks were seen back then as cattle. Things to get work done around the farm. And so from the facial features and characteristics and profile that Booker T. Washington has, he looks like a, a strong man. Uh, but he also looks like he has some white facial uh, characteristics. So give him a look. Look up Booker T. Washington if you want to see a badass mofo. Booker T. Washington goes on to write that his house, of course, it was uh, it was a shithole. He doesn't say that. Those are my words. In his words, he writes, There was no wooden floor in our cabin, the naked earth being used as a floor. He didn't have the attention of his mother because she was doing all the all the work for for the master and his people. And that uh, he goes on to write, uh, she had little time in which to give attention to the training of her children during the day. And he uses the word training because I guess those kids they were just running, they were feral, they were running buck wild. Uh, she snatched a few moments for our care in the early morning before her work began, and at night after the day's work was done. I cannot remember having slept in a bed until after our family was declared free by the Emancipation Proclamation. So if you were to try to wrap your head around the time he was born, he was born when Abraham Lincoln signed into act the Emancipation Proclamation. He had a brother John, his, uh, his sister Amanda, and himself. And they slept on a pallet on the dirt floor. Or, to be more correct, we slept in and on a bundle of filthy rags that were laid upon the dirt floor. So tonight when you crawl into your bed with the warm, clean sheets, know that you are living luxury. And you know what? You take that for granted. And I take my bed for granted. We take all these things for granted. And when we practice gratitude, the... Everyday comforts such as sleeping in a nice, clean, warm bed. Hey, maybe that will just intensify the way that we feel. That will make us more happy. Think about that. Booker T. Washington writes that there was no period of my life that was devoted to play. Can you imagine a child going through their entire life, growing up into adulthood, and then reflecting back? And thinking, hey, I don't ever remember playing. What a bummer. Booker T. Washington had a job. He had to obviously go from point A to point B. And it was a little bit of a, of a walk. And at that point, the Southern Confederates, they were starting to lose the war. And the wounded and the cowardly soldiers that were on the front lines, they had they started to retreat and go back home. In which case, if they found... Let me, you know, I'll read it. Booker T. Washington is now walking from his home to work. He writes, The road was a lonely one and often led through dense forests. I was always frightened. The woods were said to be full of soldiers who had deserted from the army. And I had been told that the first thing a deserter did to a Negro boy when he found him alone was to cut off his ears. And you thought your commute sucked. Right? Like, man, I got to get into my car. I have to wake up early. Uh, it's cold outside. I, I have to let my car warm up. 
You know, um, I have AC, I have cruise control. If you have a Tesla, you're potentially just getting into the car and having it drive you, and you're going to take that for granted. Hey, is your commute, is there Confederate soldiers on there who want to capture you and kill you because of the color of your skin? No. Once again, this is another opportunity to practice some gratitude on all of the little things that we take for granted. And this is the primary objective. When I read books like this, these are the things that come into the forefront of my mind, is how good I have it. How thankful am I? How thankful should I be that I'm not born as a little slave boy back in the day? But for as many of the slaves that you know suffered tremendously and unfathomably, there was people like Booker T. Washington who rose to such a high prominence. And I'm thankful for discovering men like him because it really makes me look at my life a little bit more. Booker T. Washington writes, I cannot remember a single instance during my childhood or early boyhood when our entire family sat down to the table together and God's blessing was asked and the family ate a meal in a civilized manner. On the plantation in Virginia, and even later, mills were gotten by the children very much as dumb animals get theirs. It was a piece of bread here and a scrap of meat there. It was a cup of milk and at one time some potatoes, and another time, another scrap. So how thankful are we that we get all the food. Man, we live in, in a time of abundance. Come on, let's think about it. You know what? Some people have the mentality of, hey, you know, that, that's not me. Uh, I, I have it so good. Like, we're so far removed of how shitty it could be. Let's be thankful and observe that we are not in the presence of a oppressive tyrant. That we are free. That we have free will we have everything that we have we have all these assets but we ignore them booker t washington writes the first pair of shoes that i recall wearing were wooden ones so he was not wearing yeezys he was not wearing uh the newest air force ones or any Nike. you know nike wasn't even invented then so he was wearing some wooden shoes now, there was an interesting dynamic between the whites and the blacks, or the slaves, because the white people thought that manual labor was beneath them. So when it came to you know, building fences, tending to the farm, doing all of those trades that the slaves were doing, that the whites thought were beneath them, those skills in the white men atrophied while the skills in, in the slave person, those developed. And they, the slaves became proficient in all of the, the duties that they were doing. So let's see. Booker T. Washington writes, um, When freedom came, the slaves were almost as well fitted to begin life anew as the master. Except in the matter of book learning and ownership of property. So the slaves, because they were slaves, they did not know how to read. Um, they thrived in everything. 
except for book learning and ownership of property. That was two things that the slaves were not allowed to do. He goes on and writes, They unconsciously had embodied the feeling that manual labor was not the proper thing for them. So the white people. Uh, On the other hand, the slaves in many cases had mastered some handicraft and none were ashamed and few unwilling to labor. So as I just mentioned, the white person, all of their skills atrophied because they left all of those important skills to the slaves. And the only things that the slaves didn't know how to do was read or uh, book learning and the property of ownership. So a fascinating dynamic that I was unaware of, but makes complete and total sense when you think about it. So now this is the part where Booker T. Washington talks about um, the day freedom came. So let's tune into this. The most distinct thing that I that little the most distinct thing that I now recall in connection with the scene was that some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper. The paper was the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After the reading, we were told that we were all free. Can you imagine that? Hey, you're now all free and could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant. This was the day for which she had been so long praying but fearing that she would never live to see. So they're all now free. Imagine that. Booker T. Washington continues to write. For some minutes, there was great rejoicing and thanksgiving and wild scenes of ecstasy. But there was no feeling of bitterness. In fact, there was pity among the slaves for our former owners. So the slaves actually felt sorry for their former owners. The wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted but for a brief period. For I noticed that by the time they returned to the cabins, there was a change in their feelings. Ooh, this part is interesting. Take note. The great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children seemed to take possession of them. A responsibility is heavy. You are now accountable and responsible for everything. You do not need The white man or anybody to tell you what to do. Hey, you want freedom? Here it is. I hope you have a strong back, heavy legs, and a mind that can learn. Because you know what? Some people thrive being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, where to go, when to go, how how high to jump. Some people like that. And for hundreds of years, slaves did not have that responsibility. Everything was told, told, um... Everything was told for them to do, and they did it. In a few hours, the great questions with which the Anglo-Saxon race had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to be solved. These were questions of a home, a living, the rearing of children, education, citizenship, and the establishment and support of churches. So the blacks had to do all this now. Let me read that again. In a few hours, the great questions which the white people had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to be solved. So for centuries, the white people were making all of the decisions. The white people were making the decisions on their homes, on their livings. 
The white people were making decisions on the rearing of children. The white people were making decisions on education, citizenship, and the establishment and support of churches. Now, all those responsibilities were now going to be placed on the laps and backs and legs and minds and responsibilities of the blacks. Fascinating. You know what? That's something that I didn't consider. I thought, hey, you're free. Now, hey, you can just go. I I never, prior to reading this book, I didn't think about it in that perspective. And this is why we read. We to learn. Once again, I'm living vicariously through the words from a man who lived over 100 years ago who was a little slave boy. Some of those slaves were 70 or 80 years old. Their best days were gone. They had no strength with which to earn a living in a strange place and among strange people, even if they had been sure where to find a new place of home. To this class, the problem seemed especially hard. So the elderly people, yep, their, their, their hard-working days were behind them. They were going to have to do something, and so that worried them. Besides, deep down in their hearts, there was a strange and peculiar attachment to old master and old missus and to their children, which they found it hard to think of breaking off. So those older slaves, they come to love their masters. And this is something that Booker T. Washington uh, wrote about, how it was a privilege for a slave to earn a job inside the master's house where they would have some type of relationship they would actually come to love their their masters not all of them of course you know it was obviously it wasn't all peaches and cream and rainbows and and butterflies but for these older older people they felt sorry for their masters fascinating so at that time uh, during the slave the slavery era the slaves they would take on the last name of their owner And one way that the newly freed slaves felt that they would be free is changing their name. So Booker T. Washington writes, um, they must change their names and they must leave the old plantation for at least a few days or weeks in order that they might really feel sure that they were free. So they were like, you know what, this sounds too good to be true. I'm going to change my name and I'm just going to leave for a few days. Imagine that. Booker T. Washington writes, Though I was a mere child, my stepfather put me and my brother to work in one of the furnaces. So he was uh, he was working something with salt, a salt furnace. Often I begin work as early as 4 o'clock in the morning. From the time that I can remember having any thoughts about anything, I recall that I had an intense longing to learn to read. I determined when quite a small child that if I accomplished nothing else in life, I would in some way get enough education to enable me to read common books and newspapers. Soon after we got settled in some manner in our new cabin in West Virginia, I induced my mother to get a hold of a book for me. How or where she got it, I do not know. But in some way, she procured an old copy of Webster's Blue Back Spelling Book, which contained the alphabet, followed by such meaningless words as A, B, B, A, C, A. Or uh, So he's learning how to read. He's teaching himself how to read. 
I began at uh, I began at once to devour this book, and I think it was the first one I had ever read. I had ever had in my hands. So the first book that he ever had in his hands. I learned from somebody that the way to begin to read was to learn the alphabet. So I tried in all the ways I can think of to learn it. All, of course, without a teacher, for I could find no one to teach me. At that time, there was not a single member of my race anywhere near us who could read, and I was too timid to approach any of the white people. Obstacle, 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 obstacle. You know, a lot of people would stop there. Man, I don't know anyone who knows how to do this. I'm not going to ask these people. Not Booker T. Washington. Get out of my way, obstacle. Uh, In the midst of my struggles and longing for an education, a young colored boy who had learned to read in the state of Ohio came to Malden. That's what the, the city he was living in, Malden. As soon as the colored people found out that he could read, uh, a newspaper was secured, and at the close of and at the close of nearly every day's work, this young man would be surrounded by a group of men and women who were anxious to hear him read. Uh, they were anxious to hear him read the newspaper and the news that that it contained. How I used to envy this man, and he put that with a exclamation point. How I used to envy this man. He seemed to me to be one. Hold on. He seemed to me to be the one young man in all the world who ought to be satisfied with his attainments. So Booker T. Washington was looking at this guy. Everyone's surrounding him and he's just reading the newspaper and Booker T. Washington. Hey, um, uh, he's not envious. He's like, man, this guy should be satisfied with everything that, that he has. So, interesting stuff. He writes, I had been working in a salt furnace. Yep, so he was working in a salt furnace for several months. And my stepfather had discovered that I had financial value. And so, when the school opened, he decided that he could not spare me from my work. So he is worth more in the salt furnace to his father than the potential of greatness and learning and advancement that education would ultimately bring him. It was an investment that his father did not see any value in. He's like, nah, you need to keep your ass in this salt furnace, boy. Go go give me them sacks of salt. After a while, I succeeded in making arrangements with the teacher to give me some lessons at night after the day's work was done. So once again, an obstacle. An obstacle at first, not being able to read, not knowing anyone who knew how to teach him to read. And then another obstacle of his father not letting him get off of work to read. So what did he do? He taught himself how to read. And then he succeeded in making arrangements with a teacher to give him lessons at night after the day's work. Come on, let's go, people. And here's another thing that is still remarkably prevalent to today. You know, fashion. We all want to fit in. We all want to wear the same things that our peers are wearing. And this is something intrinsically uh, valuable to us because to stand out is to be ostracized. And Booker T. Washington writes about these hats. 
Back in the day, I guess there were some hats that his peers were wearing, and he writes, All the other children wore hats or caps on their heads, and I had neither hat nor cap. In fact, I do not remember that up to the time of going to school, I had ever worn any kind of covering upon my head. Nor do I recall that either I or anybody else had even thought anything about the need of a covering for my head. But of course, when I saw how all the other boys were dressed, I began to feel quite uncomfortable. As usual, I put the case before my mother, and she explained to me that she had no money with which to buy a quote-unquote store hat. Man, that is still going on today. You see your peers with the Levi's, with the Oakley's, with the Pumas, with the Adidas track suits, with the Pokemon, with all that stuff. And you're like, Mom, hey, my friends over here got this and they got that. And your mom is like, I have no money. Sorry. So he was finally going, going to school and he wanted to fit in. So let's see. He goes on to write about that experience. The lesson that my mother taught me in this has always remained with me, and I have tried the best as I could to teach it to others. I have always felt proud whenever I think of the incident that my mother had strength of character enough not to be led into the temptation of seeming to be what, uh, seeming to be that which she was not of trying to impress my schoolmates and others with the fact that she was able to buy me a store hat when she was not. I have so men. So she was not trying to be anything other than what she was. And she put, or Booker T. Washington writes, I have always felt proud that she refused to go into debt for which she did not have the money to pay for. Since that time, I have owned many kinds of caps and hats, but but never one of which I have felt so proud as of the cap made of two pieces of cloth sewed together by my mother. William Shakespeare, in one of the first lines of his plays, I forget which one it is, but he says that throughout the course of a man's life, he will wear many hats. And when you think about it, I'm like, what does that mean? You wear many hats. Well, right now, I'm wearing the hat of a podcaster. When my daughter wakes up, I'm going to take off this podcasting hat and I'm going to put on the cap of a father. And when I, when Monday comes back around, I'm going to take off my father hat and I'm going to put on my worker's hat. When I come home, I'm going to take off my worker's hat and I'm going to put back on my father's hat. And if my daughter should fall and get a boo-boo on her knee, I'm going to take off my father hat and I'm going to put on my nursing hat. And then I'm going to take off my nursing hat and I'm going to put on my chef's hat and I'm going to cook some dinner. All of these hats we wear. And Booker T. Washington said that since the time I have owned many kinds of hats and hats, but never one of which I had felt so proud as of the cap made of two pieces by the cloth sewed together by my mother. So Booker T. Washington, he wore many hats, physical hats, metaphorical hats, figurative hats, because he was speaking in the, in the presence of kings and queens and presidential advisors and investors and in front of, um, who was it? Not, not Rockefeller, uh, Carnegie. I forget his name, but Carnegie was a huge multi-multi-billion dollar man back in the day. Because Booker T. Washington was born into slavery, 
um, he had no records in which to trace his ancestry, and he thought that, that it would be important and a gift of him to start with his ancestry so that one day his children could, would be proud and which might encourage them to still fight for a higher effort. So if you do not know where you came from, you don't know where you stand, and you cannot figure out where you're going, you need three plots to set a trajectory to identify exactly where you are, how you got there, and where you want to go. Seneca said, if you do not know which sail or which port you are sailing to, then no wind is favorable. So Booker T. Washington wanted his children to know where they came from, where they stand, and where they needed to go. The three-point trajectory. In regards to his family history, he writes, I have no idea, as I have stated elsewhere, who my grandmother was. I have or had aunts, uncles, and cousins, but I have no knowledge as to where most of them are. My case will illustrate that of hundreds of thousands of black people in every part of the country. The very fact that the white boy is conscious that if he fails in life, he will disgrace the whole family record, extending back through many ger- generations, is of tremendous value in helping him to resist temptations. The fact that the individual has behind and surrounding him proud family history and connection serves as a stimulus to help him overcome obstacles when striving for success. Something you don't think about, right? He was comparing the blacks having no family ancestry and the whites, which he equated to being aware of your family legacy, will help resist temptation. And it will help serve as a stimulus to overcome obstacles when striving for success in order to make his family connection even more prominent. So if you have... You know, a family history and a family and ancestry, a, a proud last name, you're going to want to live up to that. So check this part out. In later years, I confess that I do not envy the white boy as I once did. I have learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. And you know what? These aren't my words. This is coming from Booker T. Washington. So you know, he's like, you know what? I don't, I don't care what position you end up in. I care about how many obstacles you overcame while trying to succeed. Booker T. Washington writes about a great human law, which is universal and eternal. So you might want to take note on this. He's saying a, a great human law. And this is highlighted in my book, which is universal and eternal. He says that merit, no matter under what skin is found, is in the long run recognized and rewarded. So it doesn't matter what color of skin you are, where you come from in the long run, it's all about the hard work, the fruits of your labor, that merit is recognized and rewarded in the long run. So it's now time for Booker T. Washington to set out for a school. But it was going to cost him money. I think uh, I think the school he was trying to go to was about 500 miles away from where he was at. I'm trying to flip through this book. Can't find it, but 
Anyways, onward. Booker T. Washington writes, Perhaps the thing that touched and pleased me most in connection with starting for Hampton, Hampton is the school that he was attempting to go to, was the interest that many of the older colored people took in the matter. So the older colored people, they're learning that, hey, Booker T. Washington wants to go to this this school. Wow. I'll be damned. They had spent the best days of their lives in slavery. What days? The best days. Wow. They had spent their best days of their lives in slavery and hardly expected to live to see the time when they would see a member of their race leave home to attend a boarding school. How extraordinary is that? Some of these older people would give me a nickel, others a quarter or a handkerchief. Finally, the great day came and I started for Hampton. I had only a small, cheap satchel that contained a few articles of clothing I could get. My mother at the time was rather weak and broken in health. I hardly expected to see her again, and thus our parting was all the more sad. A man has got to do what a man has got to do when destiny calls you answer. He had that fire burning in his spirit so hot that he had to go and get his education. And he knew, man, put yourself in his shoes. He knew that his mother was weak and broken health and that him leaving to go get this education was potentially the last time he was going to see his mom. And in his words, our parting was all the more sad. She, however, was very brave through it all. Let's give it up for the mom with the fuck yeah. Man, let's go. Go go spread your wings, baby eagle. Go be somebody. I had practically no money in my pocket with which to pay for a bed or food, but I had hopped but uh, but I had hoped in some way to beg my way into the good graces of the landlord. For at that season in the mountains of Virginia, the weather was cold, and I wanted to get indoors for the night. So Booker T. Washington just hopped on a stagecoach. Yep, and it says right here, The distance from his city of Malden to Hampton is about 500 miles. Man, a, a youngin traveling 500 miles with little to no money, saying bye to his mom when he knows that she's going to be dying. And he arrives at this uh, this hotel. It says, after all the other passengers had been shown rooms and were getting ready for supper, I shyly presented myself before the man at the desk. It is true, I had practically no money in my pocket with which to pay for a bed or food, but I, I had hoped in some way to beg, to beg my way into the good graces of the landlord. For at that season in the mountains of Virginia, the weather was cold, and I wanted to get indoors for the night. Without asking to whether I had any money, the man at the desk firmly refused to even consider the the matter of providing me with food or lodging. Sheesh, what a dick. You're going to be a landlord of a hotel and let all these other people in. And you know it's going to be cold outside. And you see this little, you know, black boy. And he's begging you. Please let me come in. Please give me some food. And your answer is, nope. Get out. 
Whoosh. Man. This was my first experience in finding out what the color of my skin meant. In some way, I managed to keep warm by walking about. So he just, he managed to keep warm by walking. He didn't just cry. I'm sure he was, you know, scared and sad, but he, he kept warm by walking about. And so got through the night. He just walked all night. My whole soul was so bent upon reaching Hampton. Once again, Hampton is, is the school that he is desires. That I did not want to have time to cherish any bitterness towards the hotel keeper. And this is coming from a young boy. He was like, you know what? I'm going to stay focused on getting to the school. And bitterness is just going to make me bitter. Um... I think Nelson Mandela said that hanging on to bitter and resentment corrodes not the person who you hold the bitterness and resentment towards. It corrodes the vessel in which contains it. And that vessel is your heart and your soul. I applied at several places for lodging, but they all wanted money. Go figure, right? And that was what I did not have. Knowing nothing else better to do, I walked the streets. In doing this, I passed by many food stands where fried chicken and half-moon apple pies were piled high and made to present a most tempting appearance. So, hey, he's hungry. He's thinking about stealing something. At that time, it seemed to me that I would have been promised... Uh, let's see. At that time, it seemed to me that I would have promised all that I expected to possess in the future to have gotten hold of one of those chicken legs or one of those pies, but I could not get either of these nor anything else to eat. Oh man, you know what? This is why, this is one aspect that I learned about fasting uh, through a church sermon that when you fast, you put yourself in a position to feel how a majority of the world feels which is starving a lot of people can't afford food a lot of people are starving and you know what? if you want to know how booker t washington feels go ahead and go go without food for a day just about the time when i reached extreme physical exhaustion I came upon a portion of a street where the board sidewalk was considerably elevated. I waited for a few minutes till I was sure that no passersby could see me, and then crept under the sidewalk and lay for the night upon the ground. With my satchel of clothing for a pillow, I slept. Nearly all night, I could hear the trample of feet over my head. So that same chapter... He continues, he fast forwards a little bit. Many years after that, uh, many years after that the colored citizens of Richmond very kindly tendered me a, rep- a reception at which there must have been 2,000 people present. So that was a city that he was denied access into the hotel and where he slept under a sidewalk. It was a city of Richmond. He says, many years after that, uh, the, the colored citizens of that town held a reception for him, which there must have been 2,000 people. This reception was held not far from the spot where I slept the first night I spent in the city. And I must confess that my mind was more upon the sidewalk that first gave me shelter than upon the recognition. Agreeable and cordial it was. Ah, 
Imagine that. Come on, let's go, Booker T. Washington. Let me get a, a fuck yeah. Great words from a great man still coming at you. The older I grow, the more I am convinced that there is no education which one can get from books and costly apparatus that is equal to that which can be gotten from contact with great men and women. You know what? And I'm in contact with Booker T. Washington right now. Instead of studying books so constantly, how I wish that our schools and colleges might learn to study men and things. Because of Booker T. Washington's upbringing, which was in slavery, he ended up making it to the school. And he writes, Life at Hampton was a constant revelation to me. Was constantly taking me into a new world. So get this. The matter of having meals at regular hours, of eating on a tablecloth, using a napkin, the use of a bathtub, and of the toothbrush, as well as the use of sheets upon the bed, they were all new to me. So he didn't know how to do any of that. Meals at regular hours, eating on a tablecloth. Can you just imagine the confusion? He's like, what? We're supposed to eat on this cloth? And I'm supposed to use a napkin? I guess I don't I don't need to like use the sleeve of my shirt anymore. And a bathtub? What's all this? I'm supposed to get into the tub? And a toothbrush? What? I'm supposed to scrub all this? You mean this plaque is not part of my mouth? And sheets on the bed? Where's the dirty rags? Where's the pallet on the floor? I get to sleep off the ground with blankets? I sometimes feel that almost the most valuable lesson I got at the Hampton Institute, Institute was in the use and value of the bath. I learned there, for the first time, some of its value, not only in keeping the body healthy, but in inspiring self-respect and promoting virtue. He loved baths so much that he writes, I have always in some way sought out to take a daily bath. So I'm going to fast forward quite a bit through the book. We're going to get to um, the chapter that speaks of the Atlanta Exposition Address. And this is uh, some excerpts from his speech that he delivered. He goes, blah, 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 all the way into... No race can prosper till it learns that there is much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. So check this out. Go on to Google and Google, do some image searches of Booker T. Washington and the speeches. And there was no microphones back in the day. So he just had to yell at, he he had to enunciate. He had to pronounce, um... He had to, man, he had to talk really loud. He had to yell. He had to, he's doing it with no microphone. So you can imagine just the amount of energy that he is using his voice for. Badass. Go on and look at some of those images. Let me read this part again. This is coming from him. So just imagine him yelling this to the hordes of people who are coming him, who are coming to watch him speak, which began to grow by the thousands. You know what? Man, I even skipped the part where he started to build his school. That part's badass too. But anyways, on to this part. This is why 
I want you to read the book. No race can prosper till it learns that there is much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. It is at the bottom of life we must begin, and not at the top, nor should we permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities. Carl, Carl Jung, or Carl Jung, a psychologist, he is the predecessor to Sigmund Freud. Carl Jung says... Uh, He's a psychologist, one of the the granddaddies of psychology. He says that the fool is the precursor to the savior. And before he said that, Booker T. Washington said, It is at the bottom of life we must begin, not at the top. So the comparison of those two sentiments, they are the same. You start out sucking at everything that you do. You start out as the fool. You start out not knowing. You start out not even knowing what you don't know. You don't start out as the master. You start out as the fool. And the fool is the precursor to the savior. And that is Booker T. Washington to the T. An illiterate slave boy rising up into prominence. Started out as an ignorant fool. And parlayed it into the savior. And very much so was he the savior. Nor should we permit our grievances overshadow our opportunities man how what a beautiful sentence right there like you don't want to be blind to the anger you don't want to be blind to all the wrong things and that is you know essentially overshadowing allowing our grievances to overshadow our opportunities what is better a grievance or an opportunity you're going to focus on the negative you're going to focus on the bad things are you going to focus on all the wrong things that people did to you or is not fair you're just going to focus on all that meanwhile your opportunities those are going to be the things that elevate those opportunities are going to be the things that get you to the next level not bickering not focusing on all all of the crap This is a badass story right here. So this is uh, still part of his Atlanta exposition address. Once again, just imagine him yelling this at the top of his lungs during one of his speeches. A ship lost at sea for many days suddenly sighted a friendly vessel. From the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal. Water, water, we die of thirst. The answer from the friendly vessel at once came back. Cast down your bucket where you are. A second time the signal, water, water, send us water, ran up the distressed vessel and was answered. The second one is saying, cast down your bucket where you are. And a third and fourth signal for water was answered. And the vessel once again responded, cast down your bucket where you are. The captain of the distress and last heading and... and, At last, heeding the injunction, cast down his bucket, and it came up full of fresh, sparkling water from the mouth of the Amazon River. To those of my race who depend on bettering their condition in a foreign land, or who underestimate the importance of cultivating friendly relations with the southern white men, who is their next-door neighbor, I would say, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down in making friends in every manly way of people of all races by whom we are surrounded. 
Essentially, he's saying, bloom where you are. Don't set up these walls and don't try to to escape because there is not going to be escaping any of this. You need to work together and bloom where you're at. He uh, And then he goes on to say, to those of the, you know what? Before I get to this part, he was not only uplift, he didn't have only the blacks to tend to, to help them elevate. He had to deal with the white people. He had to change their minds and perceptions of the newly freed Negroes. And he writes, to those of the white race who looked to the incoming of those foreign birth and strange tongues and habits of the prosperity of the South, were I permitted, I would I would repeat that I say to my own race, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down among the eight millions of Negroes who habits you know, whose fidelity and love you tested in days when to have power treacherous meant the ruin of your firesides. So he's saying to these uh, to these white people, cast down your bucket among these people who have without strikes and labor and, and labor wars, tilled your fields, cleared your forests, build your railroads and cities, and brought forth treasures from the, from the bowels of the earth, and helped make possible this magnificent representation of the progress of the South. Cast down your buckets among my people, helping and encouraging them as you are doing on these grounds, and to education and education of head, hand, and heart. There you go, education of head, hand, and heart. You know, where's my highlighter at? Let me highlight that. Education of head, education of hand, education of heart. You will find that they will buy you surplus land, make blossom the waste places in your fields, and run your factories. While doing this, you can be sure in the future, as in the present, that you and your families will be surrounded by the most patient, faithful, law-abiding, and unresentful people the world has ever seen. Amen. In all things that are purely social, we can be seen as separate as the fingers Yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. So he's like, man, when it comes to, you know, hanging out, we can be separate. We don't need to kick it. We don't need to have parties together. We can be as separate as the fingers on the hand. But when it comes to the things that are essential and the mutual progress of both of our races, the fingers come together to form the hand poetic and you know what how much of a better person are you going to be when you're reading stuff like this and you're deeply thinking about all of the content in which the words came from a man's mind that is more sophisticated than my own how can i walk through this earth and believe that i reuben Quavis, who has added up to everything that i amount to believe that I can't learn anything from Booker T. Washington. One of the things, good things about living today is that we have the world's information in the palms of our hands and we can gain mentors who are dead, alive. Booker T. Washington left his work behind. He left his autobiography so that 
It can continue to inspire other people and the philosophy and the etiquette and the intricacies of the way he thought and his perspective, that is applicable even to today. Let me read that last part again. Where's that? In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. Come on. You're not going to say anything as cool as Booker T. Washington addressing a crowd of of oil and water. You know, blacks and whites back then, they were oil and water. Oil and vinegar. You know, two things that just don't mix. But yet, he was doing his best to blend the two so that when it comes to all things essential and mutual... They can come together as the hand and lift each other up. Oh, check this part. Still in his speech. So I guess back then there were nearly 16 million newly freed slaves. And Booker T. Washington starts to spit some fire right here. I'm going to end it with this. Booker T. Washington writes, Nearly 16 million of hands will aid you in pulling the load upward or they will pull against you in the load downward. We shall constitute one-third and more of the ignorance and crime of the South, or one-third its intelligence and progress. We shall contribute one-third to the business and industrial prosperity of the South, or, or we shall prove a veritable body of death, stagnation, Depressing, retarding every effort to advance the body of politic. Man, how awesome is that? He's like, you know what? You're either gonna be work. We're either gonna be working with you, and you're gonna help us, or we're gonna be fucking everything up. Because you can't just have one race, you know, uh, making all the gains and progress. And have 16 million people who are pulling the load downward. Great stuff. Booker T. Washington, what a guy. That was the end of his, of his speech. But man, there's still so much more. Here's another excerpt. In my contact with people, I find that, as a rule, it is only the little, narrow people who live for themselves. Who never read good books, who do not travel, who never open their souls in a way to permit them to come into contact with their souls, with the great outside world. In meeting men in many places, I have found that the happiest people are those who do the most for others. The most miserable are those who do the least. So right now, I'm at 54 minutes. 8% battery life, and I got other things to do, but I'm going to leave you with this. Booker T. Washington, of course, once again, he writes, In the long run, the world is going to have the best, and any difference in race, religion, or previous history will not long keep the world from what it wants. I didn't even talk about all of the other awesome things that he did. Once again, this is just a hopefully sowing a seed in you to read some books from other people 
to learn, just to keep learning. Um, There are two catalysts for change, desperation and inspiration. Let's not land in a place where we are desperate and doing things that, you know, out of desperation, let's keep that inspiration flowing. Keep it in. Keep the inspiration coming and then also create work that potentially inspires someone else so that we don't become like the Dead Sea, just consuming, consuming, and consuming and never giving anything back. There are many ways to serve other people and hopefully me taking an hour out of my day to share this book and the impact that it has had not only on myself but of many, 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 many men who have come before him. So if you like this, give it a like, give it a subscribe, share it, and until next time, it's onward, always onward.